look, there's really no other way for me to say it. You're missing out. If you're not playing this, you're missing out. It's the free contests on the NBC Sports Predictor app. They've already handed out over $3 million in cash prizes, and there are tens of thousands more up for grabs this and every week. So get in on the action right now with the NBC Sports Predictor app powered by PointsBet. For the biggest names in sports talk, watch the NBC Sports Channel every weekday on Peacock. Featuring pro football talk, the Dan Patrick Show, the Ritz Eisen Show, and more. Streaming live for free on PeacockTV.com slash NBC Sports. Hello, I'm Peter King. and Welcome to the MMQB podcast with Peter King where I take you inside the minds of the biggest influencers in the NFL. This week, Chris Collinsworth, the soon-to-be legendary voice of the NFL for NBC Sports, and the Washington Post's Rick Mace, who's written an enlightening story about painkiller use in the NFL. I asked Collinsworth, how intimidated were you to replace John Madden? Happened to me twice at Fox when I was over there. John left. Then I came back to NBC when NBC got football on the tail end. And they gave me that tap on the shoulder one more time. And I was like, how stupid am I? Not only once did I have to replace (laughs) you. Now I got to do it a second time. This is insane. I asked Mace, how serious is the situation of overuse of painkillers in the NFL? Nearly 27 players, so more than half of an active roster on game days, was taking at least one dose of Tordal on game day. And as you said, this is usually something that's taken um, before a game, so it's in the anticipation of pain. And now my conversation with Chris Collinsworth. Back on the MMQB podcast with Peter King, here with Chris Collinsworth at the NFL Scouting Combine in Indianapolis. I don't know exactly when this is going to air, Chris, but I do want to start off by telling you a story that you may not even remember. It's a Chris Collinsworth story (laughs) from Cincinnati, Ohio. Yeah, we go way back, big boy. So in the year 1984, it was my first year covering the NFL, and I covered the Bengals. And that year, it was a very interesting year. Boomer was a rookie Ken Anderson, the grizzled vet, Munoz was there, Reggie Williams. There were so many smart people on that team. It was unbelievable. And so I remember late in the year, my wife and I lived on the east side of town out near Anderson Township. And at that time, it must be gone right now, there was a kind of a large Catholic orphanage there. And that year, I just asked right before Christmas, I asked you, I asked Turk Schonert and I asked Sam Weich to go to this little Christmas thing I was going to do where we were going to give everybody, at all the kids at this orphanage, gifts. Sam was going to do a magic show. And you and Turk handled the gifts. You guys brought all the gifts to that thing that night. And it was really a kind of great moment, I thought, just because it was the kids were all excited to have the Bengals there. But I think they were all excited to have the Bengals bearing gifts come there. Most that- people are excited when people come in bearing <laughs> gifts. But I, I can remember it. I, I can remember going out and, and wondering, okay, Sam's doing magic. What do you get kids in an orphanage? And it, the, the easy answer is anything, right? Yeah, yeah. But it had to be a little bit cool. It had to be a little bit you know, hip. 
And that's when the Walkmans had first come out. And I mean, we walked around, it was, we walked around toy stores and we walked around and we finally settled on those things. And I think the only bad thing was uh, that one of the directors told me later that each kid then went to their own separate room and listened to music and didn't pay attention to anybody else for like a month <laughs> after that. But it was great. Sam's, yeah. Sam's magic tricks were, uh, were terrific as yeah. always. Sam was quite a trip. Anyway, uh, so I, I want to get into sort of your second life. We'll talk about TV for a second, but I want to get into your second life. So you know, a couple of years ago, you ended up uh, buying quite a large stake in Pro Football Focus. And everybody has heard of Pro Football Focus, but I remember talking to you at the time, why did you do this? And it's becoming apparent now that really knowledge is power both in the NFL with the teams, uh, with people who play fantasy football, with people who are just huge football nerds. But why did you get interested in pro football focus, this very heavy, almost football nerd, analyze every player on every play and see what kind of job he did? Why did you get interested in it? And why did you end up buying it? I was afraid somebody else was going to get it first. You know, I mean, we're all in the the business of competing for information. We're all in the business of how do we look smarter on the air? And it's hard. I, I don't care who you are. If you're responsible for 32 NFL teams on any given week, anytime I'm on a radio show or a podcast or whatever the case may be, you have to have something prepared. Well, as I found out this football season, as we were doing two games a week, because we took over Thursday night in the second half of right. the year on NBC and Sunday night, that on three days rest, to use a baseball term, I know you're a big baseball guy, that I had to be able to put together something on – 50 players on each team, 20 coaches on each team, the owners, the general manager. I had to know something in three days on each of those. And if I had to go through my traditional route of starting on Monday and watching the film and then the breakdowns and then, you know, going through the whole interview and the players and the coaches and all those things that we, there's no way we weren't going to get there by Thursday. And so I really began to, delegate i i don't know you know the president of the united states has a cabinet for a reason right he can't be doing everything there's there's no way and so i have 300 employees at pro football focus now that are not only responsive to the needs of the 25 soon to be more uh nfl teams and 15 to 16 ncaa big power teams that are out there, they're responsive to my needs too. And so I laid out a very clear format of this is what I need. This is when I need it. This is exactly what I'm looking for. Here's the film breakdowns that I need. Here's the data on the individuals and on their personal lives and what their 40 yard dash time was. And then I put those 300 people to work and it was amazing really. Um, that we were able to execute something that was very, very difficult this year. And now Fred Gudeli and Drew Eskoff and all the guys and Al and Mike Tirico and all of them were such a huge part of it. 
but it was an undertaking. I now understand what coaches go through and why they often hate Thursday night football because there's no time to get ready for the game. There's no right. time to game plan. But what about there are still people in the NFL who are skeptical of some of the things that Pro Football Focus does for a very simple reason. How do you know what the coverage call was? For instance, if you blame Darrell Revis, and he got a lot of blame in 2016, if you blame Darrell Revis for some particular coverage, how do you know that it was his primary responsibility on a particular play and other points like that. That is that seems to be the thing that and look, you know, the people you work with at Pro Football Focus, nobody ever says, well, we know that that was the responsibility of a certain guy. But that is, to me, the one thing that Pro Football Focus probably can't do. We have a simple rule. If you don't know, leave it alone. We've had everybody from Mike Shanahan in to former offensive line coaches, to former offensive and defensive coordinators, former special teams coaches, and we sit in there and we go through it. And I'm not going to tell you who this was, but a prominent guy in the league. And so he sat in and he was trying to pick us apart. And so he goes in and we're here for three hours. And I'm not saying a word. I'm just sitting back watching this thing. And at the end of the three hours, he comes up to me and he said, that was unbelievable. He said, that was, I came in here to teach your guys football. That's what you asked me to do. He said, that was a meeting of peers. He says, as a matter of fact, it was so impressive. I want to know, is there any way I can invest in this company? This is unbelievable. The number of people that you have in that room that can do this. We had a, a defensive coordinator. I won't say who again this year. He said, you have to explain to me how you get that level of detailed knowledge from these guys. He says, would you mind if I come to Cincinnati? I have to meet these guys. I now don't know how I would start game planning if I didn't have access to your data. So while there are still skeptics out there, you don't get 25-plus NFL teams and some of the greatest college programs in the country unless what's getting put on the plate tastes pretty good. Do you do exactly the same thing for big-time college programs as you do for the NFL teams? There's a level of detail in the NFL that is still above bigger. than yeah. Because there's so much to do with college, right? Uh, but we're advancing because the need is really as great with the college teams as it is with the NFL teams because the NFL teams, remember, they want it for the draft. Right. So not only are we producing it for the college teams themselves to get ready for their next opponent, we're producing it for all the NFL teams. So it is constantly growing. Remember, Pro Football Focus is 10 years old now. So it's very developed on the NFL side. We've only been doing the college product for two years now, but it's really ramping up and becoming a real profit uh, center for us as well. So one other question about sort of the future of this business and the future, I wouldn't quite call it analytics. I would call it extremely advanced statistical work. I mean, analytics, some people are doing – there's one team in the NFL that – is doing a study right now by their analytics people that is studying when our players get hurt and not just 
Okay, did it happen in April? Did it happen in July? Did it happen in September? Did it happen in a game? Did it happen during practice? But at what point of the physical activity that day did this person get hurt? Okay, so they're trying to figure out, and they thought for a while that they really had a great handle on it. And then they got, last year, they got two broken bones, which are totally, not fluky, but it doesn't matter whether it's in the beginning of practice, beginning of a game, or the fourth quarter of a game. You can't really tell. But I would consider that sort of the, you know, analytics work. But I would consider what Pro Football Focus does to be the furthest recesses of statistical study. How do you define what it is you guys do? I, well, I think it's that. I, I think it certainly is that. But that's just the beginning of it. Because you have to be able to put it in a usable form. As coaches tell me all the time, Chris, I've been doing this the exact same way my entire life. I watch the film, I do this, and I study that, and I do this, and I do that. And I go, so did I. So did I. The difference is that now the work that I used to build to on Wednesday, because I have this great base of data and information over here from Pro Football Focus, I now am doing my Wednesday work on Monday night. I've bought myself two days during the most critical time of the week for me, and now I'm on to things that I never could get to, film study. And then there's the visualization of the data, whether it is putting it in data sets and and Excel sheets, whether it's linking it to the film, whether it's linking it to NGS, which is the new thing now. So you can take the NGS and visualize. What's NGS? uh, Next-gen stats that the league is all putting out. So all these teams are trying to figure out what the heck to do with it. Well, a couple of teams have given some of it to us, and our guys have come up with this stuff, and they're like, Wow, it's been brought to life before our very eyes. But it only works. So let's say that you want to see uh, all the defenses from the Dallas Cowboys on second or third down against the blitz and cover two or cover two man inside four minutes of either half. You click on the filters for those five things. Boom, boom, boom. Here's the 17 plays at the Cowboys. Now you want to see a visualization of it, exactly how it was run on NGS? Here it is. So these lines start dancing around the thing. You want to link it to the footage? You want to link it to the plays? Hit a button. There it is. There's the 17 plays. You study those plays. So whatever subset of data, whatever subset of plays you want to study, all you got to do is plug it into the computer, and here it comes. Give me an example, if you can, of – either a concept or something you learned from this study that Pro Football Focus did that you used in a game last year that that or that you felt like you entered a game saying, oh, my God, I had no idea that Deion Jones was playing so great for Atlanta and blah, blah, blah. But tell me one way, give me an example of a way that your knowledge was really increased by them. I mean, you have to understand that there's probably, I don't know, 10 to 12 really basic run schemes in the National Football League. Uh, And somebody will say there's more, somebody will say there's less, but that's a fair number. And But every team does it a little bit differently. We have guys that do nothing but watch offensive line play every single day of their life. They see these same 12 patterns run 
day after day after day after day, 365 days out of the year. And if you know anything about Bill Belichick and his guys, those guys weren't out of MIT. You know, they weren't out of the National Football League Hall of Fame coaches. Those are a bunch of guys who are willing to sit in a room and watch the same thing over and over and over. You know, you know what Belichick has them do? He has them draw up plays. Every single person on every on the play, on every single play, they do it for five hours. They get finished. They come in, they hand it to Bill, and he goes, thanks very much. He drops it in the garbage can. Here's a fresh bit of tape. Go back and do it again. And when you do that 365 days out of the year, patterns start to emerge. They emerge. And you know what the Dallas Cowboys do on their zone plays. You know what they do on their stretch plays. You understand the kind of style it is. So I go into our offensive line, guys, and I say, all right, what's up with the Rams? I haven't seen, I haven't done a Rams game in, in 10 years. And they sit me down and go, boom, 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 in 15 minutes, I got it. Hmm. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's the repetition. It is the work ethic. I mean, our guys, from the minute, they're, they're almost finished grading the game now when the game ends. And whatever they don't get finished, they're up until 6 a.m. every morning so that every one of these teams have it sitting on their desk at 6 a.m. the next morning. When they come in and go to work, they're already on Tuesday, or they should be. Wow. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Posting your job in one place isn't enough to find quality candidates. If you want to find the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all the top job sites. Now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 200-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. Find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by Fortune 100 companies and thousands of small and medium-sized businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free simply by going to ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. That's ZipRecruiter.com MMQB. One more time. Try it for free. It's ZipRecruiter.com slash MMQB. With Chris Collinsworth with the MMQB podcast with Peter King. So, Chris, I've always wanted to ask you this question because I don't know it. When you were a football player in Cincinnati, you went to law school. Mm-hmm. Why did you do that? Because I had this really hot girl I was dating that was in law school. <laughs> And I had already been accepted to law school out of the University of Florida. So you know me, I could get a little competitive or whatever. And I, she was in at the University of Kentucky going to law school. And I went down to visit her. And so she's sitting in the library just, you know, grinding away. And it's during finals. I'm ready to go out and have some fun and go out and party. And she's like, there's just no way. I got finals coming up, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, I got accepted to law school. I could I could do this too. She goes, oh, yeah, sure you could kind of thing. So I go through and I reapply and I go to University of Cincinnati. And ends up this cute young girl is now my wife who was yeah. – 
ended up the number three student in our law school class. And I was somewhere just beneath her looking up and uh, as we graduated, but I, it was really her. It was, uh, it was some strange competitive thing that exists within me. I couldn't stand the idea that she was doing something that I had always planned to do. And I, you know, by then I kind of know your career is ticking down a little bit yeah. too. You know, it was my seventh year. I only played eight. And my knee was starting to hurt and all those kinds of things. So it was crazy, but I did it. So what what did you think you were going to do with, with a law I was going to be a lawyer. Yeah? I, it never crossed my mind for a second that I was going to be anything but a lawyer. And, what kind of law did you want to do? You know, it's strange. As I got my degrees in accounting, and the only law classes that I always aced were all the tax and all the business. And yeah. so probably something like that. I, I can just see Damn, me. I could see you as like, as like Andy Griffith as Matlock, yeah. the, the Southern guy going up to a jury, kind of sidling up to a jury and say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury with your Southern accent, really kind of charming them. Yeah. You wouldn't have done that. Only if it were in Cincinnati, I would have a chance <laughs> depending on how they, because my my biggest fans today are all grandmothers because they when at the time when I was playing because I used to take a whipping now because yeah. most of my catches were over the middle and I'm getting flipped upside down and all that kind of stuff. But uh, the ladies that were a little older than I was at that time they were they were kind of fans of the Bengals at that time and I get a lot of hugs from from a little bit older ladies. You know I'll always remember and I'll always remember this because it was like revolutionary at the time you ended up on the cover of sports illustrated <laughs> yeah a cincinnati bangle on the cover of sports illustrated do you still have to sign those to this all day all the time yeah all the time but you know what this is absolutely a true story so they, they this is up, 1982 81 81 yeah so i wasn't supposed to be on the cover so we did the article, and so it was like my college girlfriend was in town, and we weren't dating anymore, but she was in town, so she was like a huge part of this thing. I go, well, there goes my social life, but no big deal. <laughs> but we went to Cleveland to play after the article, and then it was supposed to run, and I had a big day. I had a couple touchdowns. We go to like we were, well, I don't know, five and one, six and one, whatever it was. We had a good record. We were like the surprise team in '81, go on to the Super Bowl that year, get beat by the 49ers. So they come back, and after I had this good game, they decide they're going to put me on the cover. And so I was like, okay. And so they wanted me to come down to the riverfront there and take a picture for this thing. Well, it only can happen to me. I wake up that morning with one of those prom zits. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it is. It, is, it looks a little like Australia on my chin. <laughs> and I go to. And so now I go down there and I go. Listen, I don't want to do this because I've got Clearasil on it. I've got makeup. I've tried to do everything I can, and it just keeps looking worse. It is awful. So they now they, you got to do it. So I take this picture, and I am I'm not lying to you. They tell me it's out, the cover's out. So I got to go find it here somewhere now. I am literally dreading. I am I'm going to take so much abuse for this massive zit on my chin. <laughs> I can't stand it. I'm dying. So I go down, and I've got my hands over my eyes, and I look at this cover for the first time, and it looked beautiful. There's no zit. There's no zit. I couldn't believe it. I said, how did they do that? I didn't know. I never heard of like Photoshop or touching up or anything yeah. like that. 
So to this day, that's one of the great pictures I've ever had made in my entire life. I couldn't believe it was so good. Oh, that's really good. So I, this begs the question, how in the world did you ever get into the media? You seem like a, a natural now looking back on it because you were such a good interview, but you really weren't thinking about it as your career wound down, were you? No, I was. Uh, I just gotten cut by the Bengals. And I had just been married just before that. So we got married, and I was 30 years old, I guess. In June, the Bengals cut me, and I'm still in law school. I still have another year or two to go in law school. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm just going back to law school. And I got a call from Rick Bernstein and Ross Greenberg at HBO and they asked me if I wanted to do the features for HBO. And I said, well, how much does it pay? And they said $50,000. I said, that's great. I'm in. I'll do it. Now you just got to tell me what's a feature. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know, but I was going to do it. It was 50 grand. And I was married, and, you know, that was it. So then WLW radio station asked me. Trumpy was the number one television yeah. guy at the time, and he was doing a radio show. You want to do it? And I was like, okay, I can do. So I did a little bit of that. And then NBC offered me four games. And What I, year would that have been? Uh, that was 89. Yeah. The year after the Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. Your last game was the Super Bowl? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, I played in preseason games the next yeah. year before I got cut, but yeah. Wow. Your last game was the Super Bowl, and I remember you you weren't devastated after that game, but you were just really ticked off after the Montana drive. You know, I, it, it was the second time in my life that I had ever sat on the sideline and watched a major football game unravel in front of my eyes. I mean, we've got – they really have not – done much to speak of during the course of that game and they've got to go 90 yards right in two plus minutes whatever it is so of course joe montana and jerry rice go right down the field and get it done but people don't realize that i was a part of the lindsey scott game in which the university of georgia won their only national championship wow in almost the same fashion only it was one play so they're undefeated we've got a nice team we come in there we're whipping them. We're ahead. They've got it 53 seconds or something to go 93 yards. They drop, drop a pass off to Lindsey Scott about seven yards over the ball, and I think the guy became invisible because we're in a zone defense, and somehow eight guys don't even get a finger on this guy who goes the distance. They win the game, win the national championship. And I've always said if he'd have come down our sideline, he would have been gang-tackled. Everybody on <laughs> offense would have tackled him for sure. There's no doubt in my mind. But So those were the two games I can just – and it was the same exact feeling. You know, yeah, it was nothing it, you can do. I was like, oh, what the heck, man? How can that possibly happen? And but it was we had a guy on our team on the sideline who was sitting over there and going, "We got him now. We got him now. It's over. It's over." And I was like, "Would you stop, please? Will you just look in the huddle and see if Joe Montana and Jerry Rice are in the huddle? And if they are, just shut the hell up." I go, please don't do this. And then here they go, boom, 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 right down the field. 30-something seconds to go, wow. they hit John Taylor. What did you think about TV when you started doing it? 
It was impossible. It scared me to death. Uh, back in the days with NBC, I don't know if you'll remember this, but on the pregame show, they used to make the analyst stand up there and give like a one-minute preview of the game. Of the game. Well, I'm not Johnny Carson. I'm sitting there going, you know, I felt like Walter Cronkite without a teleprompter kind of thing. And so they did a rehearsal of it the first time I ever had to do this. And so I'm looking in the camera, and Bob Costas was the host, and he says, all right, now let's go out to Chris Collinsworth for a report from Pittsburgh. And I come up, and I'm nervous as I can be, and I can barely get through it. And and Bob probably doesn't know I can still hear him. And he goes, okay, thanks a lot, Chris. Hopefully we'll come back to you with something a heck of a lot better than that. And I I remember I got so mad. I was so mad that I completely got over the nerves and I almost did like an expletive at the end of it when, when I did the real report, but it got me through. But I was talking to Bill Parcells, who was also at NBC at, at the time. And he said, he goes, let me ask you something. He said, did it bother you to have to do those things in the one minute thing before the game? I was like, Oh, I hated that. It was like a common bond. Everybody hated having to do that. Uh, So how did you get to like TV and how did you get to be pretty good at it? Do you think? Um, you know, repetition, uh, you know, I, I did, they hired me for four games, right? Yeah. And so whatever, it was just good enough. You know who saved me was Terry Bradshaw. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, David Michaels, Al Michaels' brother, was the producer of the very first game I had ever done in my life. And he walked into my room, and he goes, he goes, hey, I'm David Michaels. I'm your producer. You know, what are you going to do for this game? How are you preparing? I was like, well, I don't know. I've got these two, like, manila envelopes. I'm going to write the names on the back of it. And he put his hands <laughs> over his eyes. He was like, oh, my God. So he said, hold on. And he gets on the phone to Bradshaw, who he used to work with, and he goes, Terry, you got any of those boards left? Apparently, Bradshaw had these big boards with, you know, yeah. spaces for everything. So he had a bunch of them shipped up, and I filled in the names, and and I kind of survived. So I did those four games, and those would be like your homework on every guy. Oh, yeah. You'd say, okay, uh, you, you know, safety Sean Gale, and you'd have some notes about him. Yeah, yeah. at the time it was probably just safety Sean Gale. <laughs> <laughs> probably didn't have a whole lot on top of that, but so then we went to so the four games, and then they hired me to do five more, but I was only making like. I don't know, $1,500 a game. I remember they sent me out one time to do an interview with somebody in California. And I remember looking at the plane ticket, and it was worth more than I was going to make doing the game that weekend. So I came back, and and the next year I asked for a race. I wanted $3,000 for a game. And they fired me. It was like that was it. So I sat out the whole next year, and I thought it was over. I was just going to be in law school and do the radio. And then Dick Eversaw came back in, and he hired me the following year, and it all started up again. Let's fast forward. I want to know what it's like when you get a phone call or you get the tap on the shoulder, and they say, you are going to be replacing John Madden. Twice. Happened to me twice. At Fox, when I was over there, John left, and he was going to Monday Night Football. And so they didn't think anybody could replace John Madden, justifiably so. 
And so they put the combination of Joe Buck and Troy Aikman and me because they didn't want anybody to have the pressure of replacing John Madden. So I was like, okay, so, you know, we got to do Super Bowl together and it was great fun doing it with those guys and, and had a good time. And none of us were really responsible for replacing John. So then I came back to NBC when NBC got football on the tail end and John was, of course, there and I was doing the studio and perfectly happy. And then John retired and, and they gave me that tap on the shoulder one more time. And I was like, how stupid am I? Not only once did I have to replace you. Now I got to do it a second time. This is insane. Do you think? Do you think when you look back on it, when you watched him do games on TV, that you learned some of what you do today from him? I don't think there's ever been anybody that did games like John Madden, and I would say the maybe just the opposite of that is that there were so many people on television calling games that were doing John Madden impersonations, right? I mean, yeah. you can tick them off. Yeah. And they were they were doing some form of John Madden. Um, and I, I tried to be as smart as he was. Like, I really, beyond the humor, which was omnipresent you know right. every, every broadcast had some bit of brilliance a bird walking on the field steam coming off the head i mean we can yeah. all remember them like they were yesterday right and he always had this brilliant one-liner but what i always loved about john was what he knew about football and i asked him one time about i go how do you how do you do that right how do you how do you call the games and his answer, I'll never forget it, and this is what I stole from him, and this is what I use to this day, is that he said, watch the game from the inside out. And I said, what? I said, he said, watch it from the inside out. And I go, what do you mean by that? And he said, you watch the line play. The linemen will tell you what it is. Is it a pass? They're going to set. If they're going to you know, run block, they're going to pull. They're gonna... And it will take you to the football. And I now, at the beginning of every play, I'm watching the offensive line. That's the only thing I'm watching. And I, I'm because I played receiver and I played quarterback up until my sophomore year of college, I feel like I can capture what's happening in the secondary much quicker. But the line stunts on the defensive side, are they blitzing? Are they not blitzing? What the offensive linemen are doing? What are the backs doing? Protection, running the ball. What kind of scheme? Is it zone? Is it man? Is it what, you know, what is, if you watch it inside out, you see that. And, you know, I always figured that Al Michaels is going to tell you where the ball is going. So I'm going to try and watch everything but the ball. And but yeah, that's that's where it started. John Madden with his watch the game inside out. But I I've always sort of when I listen to you, you've got a way that is some combination of college professor and <laughs> self-deprecating goofball that makes it an enjoyable listen. Because I always feel like, okay, when you watch Al Michaels, this is no reflection on your knowledge of the rules because you know the rules. I don't think there's ever been a broadcaster in history of any sport who's known the rules as well and can elucidate them immediately like Al Michaels. And every play that happens, every single play that happens, you get a very quick 
idea of exactly why that play happened and why that play either worked or didn't work. And I think that comes from not only having played the game, but having studied these guys enough. And also the other thing is not being afraid to say, Belichick screwed that one up. I mean, you know, I get the feeling like you're not owned by anybody. You're not, whether it's a player or a coach or an owner. But that's sort of how I would observe and, and analyze the way you do it. And I think people appreciate that about you, that they know that they're getting the honest deal. Yeah. You know? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, and I, I, I think I think we all try and do a little bit of the same thing, right? I don't want to give you a guest lecture on football. I don't. I, I, I don't think I'm the smartest guy that's ever watched football in the world, and I don't want to come off that way. But what I do want to do is I want to give you something that you didn't hear from Al Michaels. I want to give you something different than what if you're watching the ball, now tell me something I didn't see, right? That's the way I've always sort of interpreted my job. But more than that, I want to take the helmet off the players. I mean, we're trying to, the numbers say that men watch football at about a 70% rate. Back when we started, women probably watched at about a 35% rate. Well, women are watching at about a 50% rate now. And not only are they getting smarter about football, but they want to know about the people. They yeah. want to know what the stories are behind this. They want the Olympic feel to what's happening. And Dick Ebersole and NBC has always sort of lived by this storytelling mode. And so if you can create human beings on the field, <laughs> when I was playing with the Bengals one time, I, I, there was a lady who came up to me and she was all excited. And, and she goes, oh, Chris, 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 Chris. She goes, she goes, I went to the game today. I go, oh, that's great. She says, no, you don't understand. I sat in the end zone in the front row, in the front row of the end zone. Said, so when you guys were down there about to score a touchdown, said, I could look inside the helmets of you guys and you looked almost human. I'm like, <laughs> no kidding. We looked human, huh? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You almost look like human beings. And I think for a lot of people, when they watch football, they're watching sort of the Fox robots, right? They're watching these mechanical beasts that are, that are running around out there. And I think the thing that Al Michaels has done great and that we try and do on Sunday night is make the game about the people that are playing it. And so this, there's this interpersonal relationship that you go through. So, but in order to do that, it's a lot of extra work. It's a lot of interviews. It's a lot of storytelling. It's a lot of, you know, building relationships where they trust you with stories in much the same way of exactly what you did. I mean, Tom Brady did a podcast with you because you built a relationship with him. If you were, that was the first time you ever met, there's no way you were going to be in Montana, right? You built a relationship. And so I think that that's the, the art of it is that, yeah, I want you to see some football and maybe learn a little football, but I want you to learn about the humanity of the game because that's what's really going to stick with you at the end of the broadcast. My, one of my great recollections about one of the things you did is on the Odell Beckham catch game. Mm. You sounded just like everybody in America sounded, basically. Like, are you kidding me? That is ridiculous. That's unbelievable. And and all this, which is what everybody in America was saying. Rather than trying to be analytic about it, 
or something. You just were gee whiz, just like everybody else. And I think that is a part sometimes, sometimes you need to watch the game and say, holy crap, did you see what I just saw? Like when Jack Buck, you know, the Kirk Gibson home yeah. run. Oh, my God. I don't I can't, believe, I don't what, believe I what I just saw. Yeah. yeah. And But there are sometimes, but, and, and I, I want to ask you about this. If you were doing the Super Bowl this year. And we are. This past year, oh, New okay. England, New England, and Atlanta. Atlanta's got an eight-point lead. They're inside the New England thirty. They can basically kneel down twice, and Matt Bryant can kick a field goal, and it'll be an eleven-point game. But they throw. Mm-hmm. Matt Ryan goes back to pass, second and eleven. He gets sacked. Then there's a penalty. They're out of field goal range. I want to know. You're watching that game at that time. Are you saying to yourself on second and eleven? What are they doing? I certainly would have made the case that you could take a knee from this point on the next three snaps and win this game, as long as the guy makes a field goal. And even if he misses the field goal, you're still going to be in a position to be up eight and they've got to go score and make a two-point conversion. But I think you have to go back to what happened earlier in that drive. And really what happened is that you could tell the Falcons – felt like they had lost their momentum. Did it early in the first half and to start the second half, they're throwing the ball, they're going no huddle, they're going fast pace. And I've been on the sideline before where the coach goes, all right, forget it. They're making their comeback. We're going back to what what got us here in the first place. We're going back to no huddle. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to be aggressive making play calls. We're going to throw the ball. I don't care what the situation is. Attack, 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 right? And that was their mindset. And they came out, and it was beautiful. They marched right down the field. They're doing great. They make it down to the 20-yard line. And the throw to Julio Jones. And the throw to Julio Jones, who makes this spectacular catch, right? And so your mindset is, we're larger than life. Our offense is back. We're going to go down and score a touchdown. We're going to end this game the old-fashioned way by sticking it to them when it hurts the most, and we're going to take it on the offensive side. Not one ounce of their brain cell at that point was saying, oh, boy, if we take a knee here, we're, uh, we're going to kick this field goal because it wasn't what got them to the 20-yard line. Right. I so I, it. I understand it, even though now, and I think Dan Quinn is absolutely right. When you go back and you look at it and you have a chance to relax and see what the time was and the moment was, you run the football three times there and you kick that field goal. But I also understand that if that mentality – uh, had been a part of their decision-making process at the start of the drive, they probably run it three times and punt and lose the game anyway. Finishing up with Chris Collinsworth. All right, my last question. I've always wondered, now we've seen it happen with John Elway. Uh, he's gone and run the Denver Broncos, and he won a Super Bowl. We saw John Lynch now. He's mm-hmm. taken the San Francisco 49ers. One of these days, I expect – maybe even as an owner, maybe even as the next Jerry Jones owner GM, Peyton Manning is going to do this. Have you ever thought about doing it? And do you think you will ever run a team before you die? I don't think there's ever been a player or a coach alive that hasn't had somewhere in the back of his mind that he would like to do that. Take a shot, right? To put one together. Uh, we have the distinct advantage of having seen how all these teams put it together. We get to see their practices. We get to talk to their coaches. We get to talk behind the scenes, and they tell us things that never make the air. 
so that we better understand how their organizations are run. So yeah, there's always been a little bit of that in my mind, especially now with pro football focus, I could cheat a little bit, have a little, a little help with 300 guys working for me in a team. Um, but I'm really happy doing what I'm doing. You know, it's a, um, it's a very public thing. I mean, I was on, you think about it. I was on the number one and number two highest rated television shows in America last year, number one and number two. I mean, what are the odds that, a little hillbilly out of Titusville, Florida was going to get a chance to work with Al Michaels and be on the number one and number two show in all of television. I mean, it's incredible. And, and I would never want to disrespect anybody in football. And I think that the people that have come up through the ranks and somebody as young as John Lynch, okay, I'm all for it. He still has plenty of time to, to do his thing. Um, but you know, we've seen these guys have success now. Ozzy uh, Newsom, yeah. right? Ozzy is, has done a tremendous job, uh, with the Ravens and with the Cleveland Browns. Elway, you can't argue with what he's been doing. Reggie in Oakland, right. Has been fantastic. I mean, there's a reason why these guys are getting more opportunities. Have there been ones that have not worked out? There sure have been. But you know what? Ozzy Newsom and... Reggie McKenzie, basically, they paid their dues, too. And, you know, they did a lot of NFL scouting and a lot of front office work. Now, John Elway did the Arena League, the Colorado Crush, before he did it. But John Lynch didn't. You know, those guys, Elway and Lynch, are kind of exceptions to the scouts' rule. You know, they didn't go to Ames, Iowa, and look for the fifth-round tight end at Iowa State. You know, so and again, which is fine because they have people on their staff who are going to do that. But I think you could do it. I think you could do it one day. I think it really might be that that next challenge for you in your life. I mean, you could easily do this for the rest of your life and have great rewards out of it. But I don't know. Someday I think I'm going to be reading about franchise architect Chris Collinsworth. I think you're going to have to have this discussion with Holly Collinsworth because <laughs> I think she might shoot me from Cincinnati all the way here in Indianapolis if I were to try and do that one, but thank you. Chris Collinsworth, thanks so much for joining me and uh, learned a lot about you. I hope America does too. Always a pleasure, pal. It's the MMQB Podcast. Look, We all know there's nothing better than a great home-cooked meal. And no one makes it easier for you to do that than Blue Apron. Their mission, to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their suppliers and only bring you the best ingredients right to your door. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. You know, my daughter just had a baby. She's using Blue Apron, loves it, and it's the easiest thing to do. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash MMQB. That's three meals free just by adding MMQB. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. 
Once again, it's blueapron.com slash MMQB. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. Back on the podcast now, Rick Mace, good enough to join us from the Washington Post. And Rick had one of the most enlightening stories uh, that I've read in some time about NFL pain management and uh, what players are still doing despite the best efforts of apparent best efforts of uh, you know a family of of the NFL to uh, sort of reduce the amount of pain management drugs that are being used you know before and after games these days uh, Rick wrote about this in the Washington Post and we're lucky enough to have him on the podcast and Rick I thought I would just start this by asking you to sort of sum up your findings of what you found when you basically went about studied and did research on this topic about pain management among NFL players sure sure the the story we we published in the post I mean it focuses on a a lawsuit um, in a federal lawsuit in the Northern District of California. And it's essentially a class of former football players, uh, about 1,800 in total right now, that are suing the NFL teams, saying that the, the teams and the team physicians um, inappropriately uh, treated them with, with pain medication over the years. And we're talking about players going back to, to the mid-60s to as recently as a couple years ago. So um, it spans a huge chunk of time and, and uh, the most relevant years of, of, of the NFL and what I mean, the, the lawsuit isn't necessarily new, and there's been a couple different iterations of it. There was a, a previous version where where Richard Dent uh, was uh, the lead plaintiff, um, but but what is new is this one's actually um, gone to the discovery phase, which means that the players' lawyers have been able to depose uh, and interview witnesses, which include um, team physicians and trainers and and league personnel, and they've also been able to depose and and get access to different documents and internal memos and emails. So. Um, what, what that kind of opened up was almost a treasure trove of information that we don't usually have on um, the internal maneuverings and thinkings of, of various team and league officials. And what, what these plaintiffs did was they, they filed a, a motion, it's called an amended complaint, that kind of laid out a lot of their claims. And they included a lot of the information that they'd, they'd um, unearthed in the discovery process. Um, now, when we first saw that memo, it was all redacted information. It was stuff that um, they weren't able to, to make public. We were able to access um, the, the redacted information due to a technical glitch and kind of share this story that, that outlined um, almost a, a, history, a history story of the leagues and, and the NFL players' relationship with pain medication. And, Rick, I think one of the most startling uh, discoveries you made in your story concerns a study that the NFL Physicians Society did in 2014, in which 27 of the 32 team physicians responded to this study. And they were asked, how many players on your team during the past season at least once used Toradol? Now, Toradol, for those who don't know, is a very powerful pain-killing injection that many players over the years have used before games. The NFL has, I'm not sure if the right word is demanded, but they've asked that this not be used basically like aspirin. You know, that that the NFL doesn't want this to be used uh, just as a matter of course for players before every game. But you found out through this study that an alarming number of players are taking this 
regularly just during the course of the season. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the survey you're referencing um, found that nearly 27 players, so more than half of an active roster on game days, was taking at least one dose of Tordal on game day. And as you said, this is usually something that's taken um, before a game, so prophylactically, so it's in the anticipation of an injury or in the anticipation of pain. Um, and this is after the NFL and, and various members of the NFL Physician Society has, has kind of recommended. Now, they haven't gone so far as to, to ban it outright, um, but they have recommended, um, you know, you use use your best judgment when distributing this stuff. And clearly, as of 2014, teams were still relying on it. Players were still using it. They were lining up before games saying that they needed it. Um, and I, I don't, I don't want to say that I know exactly how it was used in 2016, but I was a little bit surprised that in 2014 it was still used um, to such an extent, just because, um, you know, it, there had been a lot of awareness raised about about this drug and the misuse of it um, in the years kind of preceded this survey. And I suspect that some of the, the the league and team medical officials were also a little bit surprised that it was so widely used. I think there's no question about that. My jaw hit the floor when I saw that. And in fact, not to uh, give anything away, but as soon as I read that, I called one of the writers at the MMQB and I said, listen, I want you to stop what you're doing right now and I want you to start calling the players who you know in the league and players who have retired who you know, and I want you to find out as much as you can about their use of Toradol. And also, I want you to find out what are the long-term effects of Toradol. Okay, so for those who don't know, all right, I remember one NFL quarterback once telling me, who's now retired, that in the last two years of his career, he took Toradol regularly. Now, I'm not sure whether that means before every game, but he said he took it regularly. And he said, I could get beat up and hit hard in the game, and I'd bounce right back up, and I wouldn't feel it. And he said it really allowed me to play well in the last two years that I played in the NFL. But the one thing he didn't know at the time, because this has been several years now since his player is retired, the one thing he didn't know that I asked him at the time, do you have any idea what the long-term implications of taking so many doses of Toradol are? I know that when he, you know, when he uh, uh, retired, Brian Urlacher talked about sort of a fear of the unknown with Toradol. But Rick, what do you know about the long-term effects of using Toradol regularly? Sure, and just to be clear, I mean, that's one of the... the the crux of this lawsuit is that, that these lawyers and these players are saying that they were never properly warned and given the, the, the instructions and the, and the warnings about what, what all these drugs could do. But, but Toradol specifically, is an, it's an anti-inflammatory, so it's not um, you know, a, an opioid, a, an addictive painkiller, um, but it is powerful enough where, I mean, there's European countries where you can't even use it outside of a hospital, where it's only used um, you know, to recover from surgeries. Um, so certainly using it um, in anticipation of a sporting event is, is considered off-label. And, and the warnings on the box that you'd get, it, you know, it, it makes clear you can't use this, um, you know, only one dose within five days. Um, you're not supposed to stack it with other drugs. Um, these are things that we've heard from many players, um, you know, that's just routinely violated. So um, when, you, when you look at, like, long-term damages, um, you're looking at some kind of, like, internal organ issues. Um, the case cites one player who's uh, – 40 years old, no, no family history of kidney problems, and, uh, you know, he's, he's already suffering, suffering failure, and he's, he's already damaged inside. And, and that's what I think people are worried about is they, they kind of took these. Do you have any idea how many uh, doses of Toradol this player took in his career? 
I don't recall if it cited it, and one of the issues the lawyers say they, they've run into, at least in the filing they've made this claim, is that the record-keeping from team to team is, is so um, inconsistent and sloppy at times, where even if even if it shows records, it doesn't necessarily match player player recollections. But certainly several players said that they'd use it every single Sunday. They almost It was just part of their uniform. They put on their cleats, put on their pads, put on their helmet, and, and get their toward all shot and take the field. Um, and this is a generation of players. I remember we, we did a survey at the Post in 2013 of 500 retired players, and we asked them about Toradol. And those that are retired since since 2000, seven in ten said that they they were they'd use Toradol in their careers. Um, and like, like I said, it was just kind of a, a weekly thing. It was part of the routine for for a long time. You know, one of the things that really I think is alarming about this is that. You know, we just, I'm one of the voters for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. We just elected Kenny Easley to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And here's a guy who had about half the career he should have had because he took up to 16 to 18 Advils, Aleves per day just to stay on the field. So in those days, we're talking about a generation and a half ago. In those days, you know, it wasn't necessarily Toradol. It was just heavy, heavy and consistent daily doses, basically of the NSAIDs, right, of what you would think are manageable uses of things like Aleve and Advil. And and look, I just, I just had an injury, a very minor injury after I was working out. And the doctor said to me, you can take two Advil three times a day. And I went home and read the bottle and it said, you know, take one dose. I think it said one dose every eight hours, might've been every six hours. So I emailed the doctor and I said, hey, I'm a little concerned. And the doctor just kind of chuckled. Uh, You know, she called me and she basically said, this is for like three or four days. This is not going to be for years where you would be doing this and abusing it. But I think a lot of times... You know, in the old days, it would just be either aspirin or, you know, acetaminophen. And now, you know, Toradol, I just think, is so much more alarming generally with me. And and I don't know. I mean, I think this could this could have repercussions far, far into the future. Yeah, well, definitely in that, that category of NSAIDs, it's, it's the one that I think everyone's worried about right now. I mean, when you go into, um, you know, some of the controlled substances and, and the painkillers, you know, we've... The things like Vicodin and Percocet's been around the league for, for a long time. But the difference is, you know, teams aren't handing out Vicodin as you take the field. You know, that loopy feeling you get uh, when, when you have a, a drug that strong. You know, coaches and trainers and medical staff don't want their players having those. So Vicodin's not taken, you know, prophylactically like Toradol. And it's not just, you know, the things it does to your insides, but, you know, if you can't feel pain, you're putting yourself at risk out there for further injury. You know, if 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 you've got something going on in a, a ligament or joint, but you're not aware of it, and and you're lining up there, you know, who who knows what further damage you're you're setting yourself up to? And um, there, there's you know such such little public awareness about it that we don't really know what kind of impact it's already had on on players. With Rick Mace of the Washington Post, he has written a very good story, illuminating story about the uh, abusive use of painkillers by NFL players and how much they actually knew about these players before they they took them. Rick, two other things I wanted to ask you about. Number one, when you and I had the discussion the other day on the phone, when we originally talked about this, we talked about how in the future 
players might be able to manage their pain a little bit differently. And I think we both think that there's a chance that cannabis products and some forms of basically of treatment by marijuana might be preferable long-term and short-term, quite honestly, to players. And what do you sense now from from players about, or, or from the league, if this has a chance in the near future to be a more widely used mode of painkilling than the more damaging things that we're talking about? Yeah, and I definitely don't want to make it sound like I'm a, any kind of expert on medicinal marijuana and, and its, its functions, but I mean, I just think society-wide, we're kind of having a broader conversation about marijuana. Um, you know, we're seeing more and more places that are that are legalizing it in some fashion or, or, or decriminalizing it at least in some fashion. So I, I think it's natural that those conversations would carry over into some private sectors, um, include, including sports leagues like the NFL. Um, I think the NFLPA has made some noise that they're going to they're going to do some further investigation about it, and and certainly you know you you hear from players the, the, an openness that you know there there's many people that would like that to be an option, and I, I honestly hear about it more from players that have left the game who who now yeah. have access to it and and don't face you know a stigma or certainly any kind of punishment from using it, um, and you know it, it does bring them great relief because as you and I know you talk to players and. It, it, they put their feet on the floor every morning, and they can feel their joints remind them about that playing career that they had. And so they're looking for some kind of relief. Um, and again, not knowing all the, the medical benefits of, of marijuana, I, I, I can say that you know there's, there's certainly a, a big faction out there, and, and certainly many ex-football players, guys like Ricky Williams or, or Jake Plummer, that are that are very public about how how valuable it is in helping manage pain. And that's what we're talking about. Pain is so inherent in the sport, and you know they they got to learn a safe and healthy way to manage pain, not just through their playing careers, but but often for you know for for the the, the golden years and then the the chunk of their lives that follow a you know a professional football career. Finishing up with Rick Mace of the Washington Post. So, Rick, last thing I was going to ask you is, I wonder what sort of impact, if at all, this is going to have on the NFL, this story and this this lawsuit, quite honestly. To me, it's almost like another brick in the wall where if you're a mom reading this story, you're saying, oh, my God, these guys are using painkilling injections prophylactically before they play, having no idea knowing that it can't be good long-term for them and having no idea really what the level of impact is going to be. But what in your mind is the long-term impact on the NFL? And do you sense that the NFL is, I don't want to even say getting serious about this, but is the NFL looking at this now more critically than maybe they were 8, 10, 12 years ago? Yeah, I'll just say in regards to this lawsuit, it's kind of hard to fully tell you what the NFL thinks of it. And as you know, you know they kind of issued a, a short statement. You, you received one, I received one. So I haven't had in-depth conversations with the league about an act of, act of litigation. It's not usually their, their way to, to, to do things. Um, but I will say just know, knowing the league and the way they operate, um, I, I don't think, I think awareness on some of these issues is usually a good thing. Um, they, they're not usually quick to raise their hand and admit uh, fault or guilt. But I think the league is, you know, um, very open to, to changing um, changing rules, regulations, to, to sense, you know, when, when there's something wrong with the culture surrounding the league and it needs to be addressed. And usually it's, um, you know, public awareness that, that kind of forces um, them to kind of slowly turn that boat in some areas. And obviously the concussions and head trauma are a huge example. But if, you know, the league decides that 
having some of this information out there and people starting to realize what it takes for, for you know, football players to take the field every Sunday. And if they see there's some, some dangerous element to that, then they, they would certainly, um, you know, come, come down harder on their medical staffs and their trainers and, and say, hey, you know, we need, to, we need to right the ship and make sure we're doing everything, um, you know, in a, in a manner that's consistent and, and healthy and safe for our players. So um, I, I, I can't imagine that they, they enjoy a lot of these, these uh, emails and documents um, being shared publicly, but I also think that, you know, maybe this is something where further down the road they look back and, and you know, maybe, maybe there is some good that comes out of something like this. Rick, the slogan on the front page of your website now with the Washington Post is democracy dies in darkness, which I think some people have looked at it and said, hey, a little bit dramatic there. <laughs> but, but I think in this case, I think shining a light on this story and this issue can do nothing but help the long-term best interests of every person who plays football they should know exactly what the long-term effects on their lives are going to be, and they should be able to make those decisions. So I thank you for writing the story, and I thank you for joining me on the podcast. Now, thank you for sharing the story, Peter. You're listening to the MMQB Podcast. My thanks to Chris Collinsworth and Rick Mace. Some excellent conversation in this podcast. And before we go out, a couple of notes about the early days of free agency. You know, I wrote in Monday Morning Quarterback this week at the MMQB that the Jacksonville Jaguars in the last 25 months, that's the last three free agency periods, and this one's not even done yet, have spent a contracted amount of money that just staggered me when I sat down and added it up. 19 free agents the Jacksonville Jaguars have committed to in the last three free agent classes, a total of $541 million. So what has that brought them? A record of 8-24 and 24 in the last two years and a desperate situation for general manager Dave Caldwell and for quarterback Blake Bortles. And what you'll notice is all the money that the Jaguars have spent on defense. They basically... In the last couple of drafts and in free agency, they've purchased a defense, or tried to anyway, and their defense is getting significantly better. A.J. Boye, who you heard last week on this podcast, and Jalen Ramsey, I believe there isn't a better right now young cover corner tandem in the NFL. Boye, 25, Jalen Ramsey, 23 a very formidable defensive front led by Calais Campbell, Malik Jackson, uh, some very good young linebackers. And so here's the question. Why can't this franchise win? And I think it goes back to the age-old question. Do you have a quarterback? Now, the Jaguars a year ago thought they had a quarterback in Blake Bortles, the third overall pick in the draft uh, several years ago. Uh, they love Bortles. They were very high on Bortles, and he had a good year in 2015. But he slumped badly in 2016. The Jaguars, again, were awful. And it left everybody wondering, hey, is Blake Bortles the quarterback of the future? And the key question right now is, in my opinion, is that the Jacksonville Jaguars are a great illustration 
of the fact that you can build whatever you want to build around your quarterback. You can spend money and get, I think they did a great job in free agency this year, particularly Calais Campbell and A.J. Boye, two very, very good players, each with several excellent years in front of them, I believe. But if you don't have a quarterback, you're simply not going to win in the NFL. And I think it's easy to say that and say, well, what do you want to do, just give up? No, I, I, I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that no matter how much money the Jaguars or any other team spends, that unless and until you have a quarterback who you can rely on consistently to win in November and December and catapult you into playoff contention, it doesn't matter how good the team is around them. Think back to the last time that a marginal quarterback, a truly marginal quarterback, won a Super Bowl. It just doesn't happen very often. Maybe Brad Johnson. Uh, you know, and clearly Peyton Manning wasn't playing well when he won a couple of years ago, but still he's Peyton Manning. And so the moral of the story is, I believe, that I think the Jaguars are going to be improved. I think they're going to be better. I think their defense will be a top 10, 12 defense in the NFL. But you know, at the end of the day, it won't matter. If Blake Bortles is mediocre, the Jacksonville Jaguars will stumble, be below 500, and more changes will come early in 2018. Thanks to my guests, Chris Collinsworth and Rick Mace. If you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes in the MMQB series, such as my conversations with Tom Brady, Adam Schefter, and Drew Brees. You can find these on the MMQB.com or on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to leave a review while you're there. You can also hear the MMQB podcast with Peter King on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning at 7 Eastern on Mad Dog Sports Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 82. Thanks to the fine folks at Digital Media for their production work. And of course, thanks to my sponsors, Blue Apron and Zip Recruiter. Please support them the way they support this podcast. And I'll see you next week.